and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about books and ideas and uh, plants, I think. We're talking uh, today. Uh, I'm, my name is Thomas Magby. I'm joined, as always, by A.J. Hannenberg, who's here, yeah, and yeah, Graham yeah. Donaldson, yeah. who's also here. Great. Okay. Nailing it. Oh, hello. Yeah, cool. Great. <laughs> awesome. Uh, okay, we've done a lot of intros, but this is the first time we've actually failed to say hello at the beginning of our intro. That can't be the first time. I'm sure our listeners will be like, be. actually, it's the 47th. Uh, anyway, we're here to learn about roses. Uh, Graham has been getting into uh, gardening. We, we must have made this joke. We already. must have. I, I feel like we also probably no, made a, a joke about plants. Two, two neighbors fighting over a fence line, the War of the Roses. Yeah. We have. If we're going to make the first one that popped up, we got to yeah. do something yeah. new. Yeah. If we're new, new jokes, I mean, we can talk about Seal's kiss from a rose. That's an acceptable path to go down. There you go. Uh, he used to be married to Heidi Klum. So yes. just so him versus the Germans. Guns and Roses. Yeah, guns, guns. Yeah, gun, we there you go. Guns and Roses. Um, yeah. So War of the Roses would be Guns and Roses versus. I don't know. Yeah. Somebody Welcome else. to the garden. There you go. Welcome, Welcome to, to the garden. garden. Yep, nailed it. <laughs> uh, Please obey the rules. Uh, <laughs> speaking of rules, Graham's leading today's episode. I don't know. What do yep. you want? Uh, okay, go for it. Um, so last time, last Plantagenet episode. Uh, I actually, I have a little bit of anxiety whenever I start a new episode because I feel like I'm telling the story to you boys, you guys, Mm -hmm. and we haven't talked about this in like months. I have no idea what's happening. But people who are listening to this as a series, I've just finished the episode and are just starting a new one. And I'm always like, do I just like jump into where I ended the last one? And AJ and Thomas are like, I have no idea what's going on or not. But anyway. I remember something about... king that didn't really want to be king he wanted to be a monk a no no so this is a while ago okay so where like we ended ago. was the last episode henry the sixth needed a wife and the duke of suffolk went to france and found him the sweetest lady in all of christendom and the duke of suffolk was cool right the duke of suffolk was cool so margaret of anjou she came back she married the king they actually loved each other um but the problem was they were having some problems getting a kid uh, okay. There was no baby, and some people, the rumor was that maybe Henry VI didn't just have the hammer and the anvil to forge a child, if you know what I'm saying. Um, and uh, so there was some concern. Oh, my God. That's actually, that's actually a quote. Uh, not from this, but there was a, um, uh, that, that was a, uh, uh, there was a story of um, a guy who was, his kid had been kidnapped, and they were holding that up. Saying that, like, ha, uh, surrender because we've kidnapped your child. And he said, I have the hammer and the anvil to forge another, is what he said in reply. I know the poor kid. History's so Uh, metal. (laughs) I can't imagine a millennial saying that same thing. Anyway, I think, anyway, so people were concerned that Henry VI couldn't have a kid because they hadn't had one for a while at all. Sorry, they'd been married for a while and had not had one. And Henry VI had not named an heir to the throne, and there was people who all had varying claims to it. Um, The strongest claim to the throne was Richard, Duke of York. And we introduced Richard, Duke of York in the last podcast. He had been the faithful servant of the king, serving in France, and then when he left France, um, a guy by the name of Duke of Somerset, which will be a main character today, kind of like lost it all. And Richard, Duke of York, he's hanging out in Ireland on the king's behest. Go take care of Ireland. And he's there, and he's got the strongest claim to the throne. His grandfather was a brother of John of Gaunt, 
John of Gaunt probably should have been king. He wasn't because it was passed over to the baby of Richard II. Anyway, whatever. You can go back and listen to all that whole story. But Duke of York, he has sort of the strongest claim. And where we ended the last episode was the king who may have probably, who was very, he was that king that may have been like really, really, really smart or really, really, really dumb. We don't really know. He was, he was somewhere, um, he seemed to be, he was very pious, but he was also very impressionable. And uh, um, did not inspire confidence, in the very least. But was lovable and likable, and people liked him. Anyway, he was presiding over Parliament, and a little dude in Parliament, in his like, first time in Parliament, stood up and he was like, Listen, King, we need you to name an heir. If something happens, like we need to have somebody. And he was a little bit too forceful, and he said it should be Richard, Duke of York. And he was a little bit too forceful, and he kind of pushed the issue so much that it, the king was like, you got to cool off, buddy, and put him in the Tower of London just to, like, chill. But there was this growing sentiment in England that Richard, Duke of York, he's a man's man. He, by this time, I don't know if by this time, but he ended up having 11 children with Cecily, his wife. So plenty of heirs. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the hammer and anvil, right? A lot of, he's um, got a whole black So he's got a whole line of potential kings. Right. So we don't have to have this, like, anxiety-producing uh, uh, succession worries. Um, and he is um, justice-minded. He is a servant. He was a man of of um, Chesterton, it's not Chesterton, sorry, um, Churchill, uh, Churchill um, uh, really lionizes him in his uh, English history of the English-speaking people. He's quite a fan of the Duke of York and claims um, and sort of bes- uh, talks about his many virtues. Dan Jones, who wrote another book called The War of the Roses, which I've, uh, I've used for influence uh, or for this podcast, he's a little more skeptical as to the motivations of Duke of York. But at least early days, Duke of York is somebody that wanted to be the king's servant. And people were just like, oh, man, I kind of like that guy. Uh, He inspired confidence. And we're kind of back in a Richard II and Henry Bolingbroke situation where Richard II is kind of namby-pamby and Henry Bolingbroke's kind of awesome. And you've got Henry VI is kind of not – he's not inspiring confidence and he can't seem to get a kid. And Richard, Duke of York is dope. So – the man stands up in Cong- in Parliament and was like, "Give us uh, name Richard as your heir." Um, he gets this guy gets thrown in jail, and for some reason, and this is a a big question that's sort of open to history. Richard, Duke of York, returns from Ireland to England with a host of like ten thousand men, and there's competing. So th- this is where intentions and narrative kind of collide. Because um, the way that, that uh, Churchill talks about it, and even Dan Jones mentions it in his book, is that um, um, some people, when, when you hear, oh, the heir to the throne is, is landing on England with, with 10,000 men, most people in England were like concerned that this – or most people who were loyal to the king were concerned that this was war. Uh, war. That this was going to be a civil war and here comes somebody to, to press his claim to the throne and maybe usurp the crown like it's happened before. There were people who were discontents against the king. Remember, Suffolk gets his head chopped off in a boat. Um, the king's law is the, – the kingdom is kind of in crisis because a weak king had kind of meant that people felt like they could get away with petty crimes and there was a lot of petty crimes happening. So there was uh, a couple of, and we talked about in the last episode, there was a couple of, like, popular uprisings in the southeast in Kent, and they would march to England and, like, you know, freak out at the king. 
Uh, they killed the king's treasurer, stuff like this. So when Richard Duke of York lands with 10,000 men in Wales, a lot of people and... and are, Is he coming back from France? From, from Ireland. He's been in Ireland sort of like taking care of the Irish. And you know what? which is a rare thing in history, the Irish loved him. Mm. They're like, we love this guy. He rules justly. So, oh, they lo- so, the, so the Irish loved him. But he's coming back, and he wasn't called back. He wasn't bidden to come back. He should have oh, been. Oh, he just rolled in. He should have been continuing his job in Ireland, but he rolls in with 10,000 men. Yeah, that doesn't now, look good. Now, the advisors to the king are like, he's coming for the throne. This man is a rebel. And the king is like, okay, well, then close the ports. Uh, we'll, we'll face him in the field if we have to. The king was basically like, I don't know why people think I shouldn't be king. I was king. My father was king, and his father before him was king. There is no crisis. This is this, and by this point, Henry VI had been king for forty years. He's a forty. So he's from the cradle till now. Um, is but, he not aware of the popularity of the other guy? That's that's an interesting question about Henry VI. How much is he really aware of 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 the world around him? Um, but anyway, but then on Richard Duke of York's. Um, motivation. Maybe he was coming as an invasion force. But um, if we take him at his word, he really felt like he was called to come and be the king's servant in England. I had gone, Richard, in his own mind, was thinking, I have gone and I have been the king's servant in France, and I did a good job when France was in crisis, and then he left and France fell apart. I have gone to Ireland and I have been the king's servant in Ireland, and that has gone well. And now the king is surrounded by people who are poisoning his mind, and I need to come, and I need to be the good servant to the king here in England. So if we're going to take Henry, or sorry, Duke of York at his word, this was his motivation for coming. So he's landing with people. So why the 10,000 dudes? Yeah, yeah. Probably because maybe he was concerned that the king's allies would oh, try to come, force him out. Would come for him. Yeah. But you're so what the the story has it that he was riding, he was coming from England, uh, Ireland to come into Wales, and he has ten thousand men. He's like trying to land his boats at the harbor, and the Welsh people are like, "No, man, you can't come in here." The king said, "You can't." And Duke of York's like, "Why?" And they're like, "Well, you might be a traitor. We don't really know. We're Welsh. We don't really care. Um, <laughs> but you might be a traitor, and we've been told you can't land here." And so Richard Duke of York, very embarrassingly, had to like go like five miles up. Uh, the coast and like beach his boats and unload all of his like men and horses and carts like on a beach. And this was like a big sticking point. He was kind of upset about this for a long time. Um, And, um, and so, yeah. So why does the Duke of York come? Um, Now the, the Churchill thing says, uh, claims that the Duke of York was thinking himself a savior and a patriot. Um, that he was coming to help the king execute the law because this was the big problem. Suffolk got his head chopped off in a boat. Um, there is petty crimes happening. There are uh, there are little popular uprisings of people riding into England and like murdering people. There was riots in the street. There was a thievery. Houses were getting burned down because people felt like they could get away with it because the king wasn't coming with his men and throwing down and keeping order. Um, there was... Basically, there was just a sense of weakness. And with this sense of weakness, bad men were taking advantage of it. And Richard Duke of York thought to himself, maybe if I come with a show of force and I go to the king and I'm like, hey, I am at your bidding to execute your justice in the land, then maybe we can, you know, right the ship a little bit. If you remember, there's been a lot of discontent in England because they lost so much of the land in France 
that they won under Henry V, Henry VI's father. And that loss, it was supposed to be a glorious century dawning on England. And now it's turned into this like mucky, loose loss of land. We killed Joan of Arc uh, uh, and things were pretty crappy. There was grumbly boys is how we talked about it last time. A lot of grumbly boys in France. The English in France were grumbly and then the English at home were grumbly. Things just aren't looking good. And Duke of York's coming and he's like, let's... Let's get our mojo back. Like, let's, you know, let's crack some bad, let's crack some heads in England and get people in line and, you know, let's get this ship of state, you know, in order. This was probably his motivation. Okay. Um, while he was in England, yeah, he was watching the crisis happen. The crisis that happened was that the Duke of Somerset, who was a man by the name of um, Edmund Beaufort. And Wait, so it, while he was in England, he was watching this? Or so while, while he was in Ireland. Ireland. Well, probably, I'm just sort of trying to give more motivation to the Duke of York as to why he's coming. There was a couple of crises. Right, right, right. Um, so Edmund Beaufort was um, the, the Duke of Somerset, is going to be Duke of York's main rival. So the Duke of Somerset was the commander in France when York left. And he ended up losing Normandy. Normandy is the northern part of France. It's the place where you can, like, see England. Uh, and he lost that, and this was a great – this was an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment, yeah. It's an embarrassment. So he sees – so the Duke of York sees Somerset lose Normandy. Um, the the uh, Duke of York saw Suffolk get his head chopped off for being a, quote-unquote, traitor for selling English land for a French princess. That was why they killed Suffolk. And he's also watching these rebellions coming out of Kent – all these like populist uprisings, um, um, asking for like, you know, crazy abolitions, like abolish, you know, you know, murder, you know, just people asking for for crazy things um, and riding into town and, and terrorizing London. So like what were they trying to abolish? Um, we talked about it last episode. It was I think that one of them was like like taxes. Like we don't want to pay together. taxes anymore. Like no more taxes. Right. Sweet. And people were like, that's a great idea. <laughs> And they were going off to England and demanding no more taxes. And so Duke of York is watching all of this happen. He's probably thinking, I have the royal, I have royal blood. I have men who are loyal to me. I have everything that this kingdom needs in order to right it again. And he, and he didn't want to sit on the throne. This is at least, um, this is, this is Churchill's conjecture. And I, and I tend to agree. Um, it is perhaps my destiny to come and help restore order to England. Okay. Um, but of course, he lands with a force of 10,000 men, and this, like, freaked people out. And so, you know, York is landing, and he, in his heart and his intentions, are, I'm here to help. But everybody else is like, oh, my word, we're being invaded. Or maybe he was actually getting treasonous people being like, finally, and, like, flogging to him being like, yeah, man, Let's go kick out these Lancastrians. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm not here to kick out the king. And then people will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You're not. But they would follow him anyway. So he gets rabble following him that are like against the king. And he's so – anyway, you have these, these clashes of narratives. What are the actual motivations of, of the people that are coming in? Um, so he and, – and I admit – some of his actions make it look like he's, he's, you know, wanting to turn the screws a little bit as opposed to being just such a helpful guy. Because he marches, uh, he, he has, he's landed with 10,000 men. He's got vast tracts of land. He owns lots of whales. He has lots of, of land in the south. Um, uh, he is the most landed 
um, um, noblemen in England at the time. So he leaves his 10,000 men there, um, and he takes 1,000 men, and he rides to London to talk to the king. Um, and so um, he marches to London with 1,000 men and his most closest and most loyal lord, the Duke of Norfolk. And Norfolk is, he is eventually, and I think, yeah, Norfolk is eventually known as the Kingmaker, I think is his nickname in history. Um, a little bit of foreshadowing there. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but I, it could be a different Norfolk. I could be confusing it. But anyway, him and his, and his buddy Norfolk ride. But when he gets there, Margaret of Anjou, the, print, the queen, has sort of heard word that uh, Duke of York's coming, and she rallies all of the other nobles to stand by the king. So he marches to London. Margaret gets the king, puts him in his fancy armor, and he's like, do I have to? And yes, you have to. He puts him in the fancy armor. Um, They get the Duke of Somerset, who is the big right-hand man. He's Edmund Beaufort. He is the family that has been championing uh, this this Lancastrian line forever. Um, His, you know, uncle was Cardinal Beaufort, like the big, big deal, the guy who lost Normandy. He's there. And the Earl of Warwick is there, the young Earl of Warwick, only 24 years old. And basically, the, the king and the queen have all of the most important lords with them. And you have, you know, a host of a thousand men with the Duke of York and the Duke of, uh, and the, uh, Duke of Norfolk. You've got the queen and the king and all, and all their nobles. And people are like, well, hot dang, what's going to happen? This looks like it's going to be a civil war. This looks like a fight's coming. Um, Dance battle. Yeah. York did not want that. Actually, there is kind of a dance battle a little bit later. It's not oh, a dance sweet. battle, but there is something fun that happens. Um, um, York didn't want violence at all. Um, what York wanted was York wanted uh, it's, it's a, York maybe wanted the king to say that to acknowledge him as the heir to the throne um, until you had a kid. Uh, I should be, you know, the one that you everyone knows that everybody knows that I should be it. And I just want you to say it. So that's what he asked for. And, well, so he does ask for that. Um, yeah, sort of. He sort of implies that you know, I'm your kin, and I should be close to you in this moment of national crisis. And if we went by the letter of the law, he should be, he should be the, the heir. Um, and he is also sort of implying that uh, the um, uh, the Beaufort, Edmund Beaufort, uh, Duke of Somerset, is kind of trash. He's like, hey man, he lost France. Um, he's not so great. And, um, and maybe we should, you know, not have him come along. Um, and, and the king, um, acquiesces and, uh, has what is, um, he says, I will, uh, what does he call it? He off, uh, so, so, um, York's, oh no, the, the sad council is later. Um, uh, York came, they have a bunch of parlays back and forth where the, where they're talking about what they should do and, um, one parlay gets kind of leaked to the press. Well, it's not really a press, but gets leaked to the people. And it was where York said that I will offer to ex- he, he he makes a strong offer to execute your commandments. And people who looked at who thought York was a usurper looked at that and they're like, "Oh, you cheeky jerk! You want to execute the king's commandments? You want to be in charge?" And the people who are on York's side were like, ooh, that's just smart. Yeah, we should get you to execute the king's commandments because he's not executing anything. And I got a bunch of people who should be executed. <laughs> um, and so that got that sort of got published. I got a friend. His name yeah. is Commandment. 
Um, that kind of was made public, and that fueled a bunch of worries. And over this, the course of these parlays, where these basically two armies are standing off, just like texting each other back and forth about what they should do, people started thinking the, on- the only thing that's going to happen is violence. This is going to be violence. They're going to start fighting. And the Duke of York kind of picks up on the fact that people think that it is inevitably going to be violence. So what he does is he basically puts himself into the king's hands. He sends his thousands of men home. He comes to the king without his helmet on. He's coming bareheaded, and he presents himself to the king. And you can imagine that Somerset's there being like, oh, we got to kill this guy. Mm. Um, But he comes to the king, and he presents himself and kneels before them um, uh, and basically puts himself in the the king's hands. Um, And um, now, if they had killed the Duke of York, or called him a traitor. They could have trumped up charges and said, you, like, marched on London with an army. That's pretty, like, I don't know what else you want to call it. It seems pretty treasonous to me. They could have. They don't. But when he's kneeling in front of you, it's really hard to prove. Also, he's got a super dope son named the Earl of March who is in Wales with a giant army. So, yeah. Earl of March, dope kid. He's yeah, he's got nine thousand. He's more got folks. he's got yeah he's got all these dudes. So they're also like, okay, if we kill the Duke of York, then we're really starting a war. So he comes, he presents himself bareheaded to the king, and the king says, "I will convene." The king calls it a sad and substantial council. Okay, um, and you're going to be on it. And what the Duke of York wanted was to basically be regent. Say that I am your right-hand person. Basically, he wanted Somerset's job. This is what Somerset's doing. He's like, I want um, Somerset's job. And um, and so he said, no, I will allow you to be on this sad and substantial council that will counsel me as the king. And Margaret of Anjou made sure that Somerset was also on this sad and substantial council. Mm-hmm. So you got the Duke of York and you got the Duke of Somerset who are on this council who are going to counsel the king of what to do. Um. The Duke of York sort of see he's he's kind of disappointed and he's sad and he's like, well, I don't think this is this is going to be this isn't really the the um, the payoff I was looking the for. payoff I was looking for. I wanted to basically be given the authority to throw down in England and to like you know write everything. I don't want to be sitting on a council fighting with the Duke of Somerset for the next five years, which is exactly what happened. Um, but okay. So he kind of then goes back home. He goes to the he, Duke of York agrees, and he goes home to the Midlands. Um, so where he's from, he kind of goes back to. So the Midlands being like, where is that in England? Uh, the middle, the Midlands, like uh, like Wolverhampton. Anyway, so he goes back to the Midlands of England, where where he's sort of from. Okay. Um, meanwhile, we've got this situation in France. Um, Somerset had lost Normandy. Um, and, um, Somerset, he's an interesting guy. Yeah, what was he good at? Why was he around? So, he was a Beaufort, and, which, he was part of a family to whom the crown was immensely indebted to. Yeah. Like, money-wise. Okay. Um, and so they're this just really well-connected family, uh, they've been married, they're married into all sorts of things, um, um, but the, Somerset, he doesn't own a lot of land. He's not a very well-landed, um... Uh, gentry. So he actually has the time and the ability to spend on the crown, whereas the Duke of York's got to manage, like, essentially lands the size of a small country. Like, way, a lot of whales, things up north, things in the south. The Duke of York, he's got, like, beer to brew and crops to do. You know, he's got, like, stuff to do. Somerset, not so much. Somerset can spend all of his time just, like, 
you know, um, uh, cozying up to the king and working on the affairs of state and this kind of stuff. Um, not a great soldier. He lost Normandy. So we had this big question. Who are we going to have be the supreme commander in France for a while? while uh, uh, Somerset's not there anymore and the Duke of York's back. And they turned to somebody who was married to Somerset's sister. And his name is John Talbot. And John Talbot is one of the awesomest people in all of English history. He's known as the English Achilles, which is kind of dope. He's also known as the Terror of the French, which is super awesome. Um, he is, he's an older man at this point, and he is like your old school knight of chivalry. Oh, there was not a romantic charge that John of Talbot did not admire. He loves to ride out. He loves to have sort of like brash charges. Um, he so was, he's Don Quixote, but during the actual time oh, when he yeah. was needed. Yeah. And he, Put a windmill out there, he's going to tilt it. John Talbot is just, the men love him. Uh, I mean, if your name's English Achilles, like, that's that's super awesome. Yeah. Um, I mean, it doesn't he, bode well for your death, but I'm, oh, I'm with you. He's got such a great story that's going to ca- come at the end of, of the podcast today. But so, so they're like, all right, we'll give it to Talbot. And Talbot's like, y- yes, you did the right thing. So he gets the um, command of the French forces and just goes to town. Like, starts winning stunning victory after stunning victory in the north of France. Um and uh, and a lot of his victories are he sees that the French are kind of wavering and nervous and they start to retreat and he's like, let's go, boys. And he just runs them down and he gets these like victories he should not have won. People are singing Talbot's name in England. Uh, John Talbot, uh, Earl of, oh gosh, what is he the Earl of? Um, can't remember, he's the Earl of something. Um, Shrewsbury? Yeah, Earl of Shrewsbury, thank you. John Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, starts winning these battles. Um, Fun fact about uh, Talbot, he had been captured by the French after a battle, um, uh, uh, and uh, he was, I think he was in prison for like two or three years, and he did a prisoner exchange, so he got released with some other French prisoner, and uh, John Talbot was such a gentleman, and he actually became such friends with the French, that he promised that he would never wear armor in battle fighting against the French king again. The idea being like, if he goes to war, he is going to stay and be a commander. He's not going to like run in and be the one that's actually bloodying his hands and killing people and maybe even like fighting the French, the the flower of French chivalry. So he makes this probably foolhardy um, uh, 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 promise that he will never wear armor against the king of France again. And in all of these battles, he holds to it. He's just like riding around in a t-shirt and uh, commanding people. Is, and um, he's probably like, you know, uh, well, he was the Earl of what? Shrewsbury? He's probably wearing like a Shrewsbury shirt. And, uh, and he's commanding his, his little, his soldiers. And uh, man, the French are terrified of him. And the English are like, okay, cool. All right, we'll leave Talbot in charge. And he's married to Somerset's sister. Um, so he, he's, he's so awesome. So he's well-connected, doing awesome. Yeah, he's well-connected, doing awesome. He starts to win back Normandy? Uh, yeah, he, he actually, um, the great battle that he wins coming up later, he actually ends up winning all of Bordeaux, but we'll, we'll get back to, we'll come to that later, which used to be for English, but mm-hmm. was lost. Um, so Duke of York is kind of, is kind of back in the Midlands being like, okay, this didn't go the way I thought it was going to. 
Um, the uh, Somerset is sort of weaving his webs uh, in with uh, Henry VI. He's super close with Margaret of Anjou. So Margaret's like, you're my closest ally, Somerset. Like, you are, uh, we're going to, you know, you help us rule because my, you know, my, my husband, God love him, like, he's a pious dude, but he's, you know, he's kind of a, kind of a Kleenex of a man. Um, and, um, yeah, and no kids. Um, okay, so in 1450 in November, there was, uh, they had to convene parliament. It's got to happen. And everybody knew that this was going to be a pretty touchy parliament, that, like, Duke of York's coming, uh, Somerset's coming, they are on this council that is supposed to be advising the king. People are like, I don't know how we come out of this one without, like, punches thrown or some sort of violence, right? The SAS council? Sad yeah. and substantial? This is, yes, this is, this is yeah, this is the sad and substantial council. Um, there was, uh, it's kind of this interesting thing that, like, the common people reading the, le- reading the tea leaves of history are just, like, looking at the situation probably... Everybody just sort of had this feeling like, yeah, there's going to be, like, we're just, we're, there's going to be bloodshed. Like, it's, it's, it's just sort of almost like a feeling of inevitability. And I mentioned this in the last podcast, that there was a really popular sentiment among the peasantry right now going around. It was almost like a little catchphrase. Um, it was, and it was, the less nobles, the better. Um, there was just sort of this sentiment that this, you know, we've had this sort of coalescence of a system of governance in a certain way and it works really well under strong kings and it works really badly under weak kings and we have weak kings and we have people vying for power and it just was like this this feeling that a shoe was going to drop and it was going to and it was going to go bad and that I mean it's true that's exactly what happened um when churchill talks about um the 30 years of the war the war hasn't quite started yet but um um um, well, he says, he says this, um, the attitudes and feelings of the public in all parts and at all times weighed heavenly with both contending factions. Thus, Europe witnessed the amazing spectacle of nearly 30 years of ferocious war conducted with hardly the sack of a single town and with the mass of the common people little affected and the functions of local government very largely maintained. So, um, the people sort of realized that there was almost like this great turning that was happening. And I use that word on purpose because I, over Christmas break, I started reading uh, Strauss and Howe's The Fourth Turning. And if you're you familiar with the concept, maybe are you familiar with the concept? How would you like summarize the, the idea of, from that book? What's like the thesis of that book? You know that crazy idea people have that there's a difference between boomers and millennials? That's the fourth turning. Yeah. And there's, so the, the idea that generations have some type of shared personality a or seculum. attributes, yeah, mm-hmm. that's fourth turning. And then also there's this idea that every fourth of these generations, there's a revolution of some kind. I think yeah, there there's some, yeah, that, that there's sort of cycles to history and every sort of a hundred years or so you have this new cycle um, where you have these four distinct kinds of generations that go through a passage and then at the, in the fourth, so there's a first turning, a second turning, a third turning, the fourth turning, and then in the fourth turning you get some sort of reordering of the civic values and a reordering of society and sometimes it's very violent like World War II and sometimes it's not violent um, but, it, but it is a crisis. And they actually, in the fourth turn, in the book, The Fourth Turning, uh, Strauss and Howe go back and they, they sort of roughly map out uh, all of these, these periods in England. And the, the War of the Roses hits 
on a fourth turning period. And it, and, and it you know, people kind of like to dunk on that book a little bit. I, I actually think they get more right than wrong. Um, but there is something about this period where people are like, yeah, there's, the winds of change are blowing. And, and the, even the common people knew that like some kind of violence was coming. And so when you had this parliament coming in November of 1450, people were nervous because all it takes is one dude with an itchy trigger finger and we got a, we got a standoff, right? Like, or I guess if you have an itchy, itchy trigger. scabbard finger. Yeah. Or somebody, yeah. All you have is like, they you need, hmm? They didn't have like an automated crossbow or yeah, something? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. All you need is like one misunderstanding. We've already seen there was a misunderstanding where the Duke of York was like, I'm here to help. And everyone was like, with 10,000 armed men? Right. Um, and uh, so people were nervous going into this parliament. Okay. Um, everybody came with a retinue of armed men to parliament. Um, and there was a kind of a bit of a bro-off. Um, where, uh, um, you know, you, it's parliament and you would go and you do the business of government, but what are your armed dudes going to do? Well, they're going to go be drinking outside. Um, they're going to be lobbing insults at each other. They're going to be like, I don't know. Picking fights. Wrestling. Yeah. There's going to be outside and and it's going to be a little nerve wracking. Um, uh, the parliament is, is, is is going, is happening and the Duke of Somerset, uh, so, um, uh, um, Beaufort, he's staying at a place, uh, I think, uh, he's staying at a, a little inn. I think it's called Blackfriars. Maybe, I can't remember if that's true or not, but he was staying at this inn and he's like going to bed one night and all of a sudden he hears some rabble outside and he hears what sounds like some kind of commotion. And uh, the innkeeper bursts in and he's like, man, we got to get you out of here. There are some dudes here and they're calling for you and they got swords and knives and stuff and you got to get out. And they actually smuggle the Duke of, Duke of Somerset under a couple of floorboards and, like, out into a boat. And they row him away. And a bunch of guys come into the inn and, like, kind of ransack the inn and drink all the wine. And they take all of Somerset's stuff. They, like, rob him. And Somerset had to escape with his life. And, um, and so Somerset's upset. Uh, he got stuff taken. That sucks. Right. Um, and, and he's like, oh, York did this. And York's like, no, I'm not sending dudes to murder you in the night. No, that's not what I'm doing. And to, no one really knows what's going on. You're like, who's going to kill Somerset uh, or take his stuff? To this day, we still to this, Well, no, we, we, we kind of know. Oh. Um, we'll get to that. Um, but anyway, so everyone was like, oh, man, if there's no fight tomorrow, like, there's going to be a fight tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If someone tried to kill Somerset... When we get to Parliament, everyone's going to be armed. Everyone's going to be off. on edge. It's, it's popping pop, it's, off. It's happening. So they get to Parliament, and everyone's kind of like on edge with each other. And York and Somerset kind of are, they're not friend, they're not friendly. And they come up and they're like, "Okay, listen, we should probably diffuse the tensions." And then they sort of say, "What should we do to diffuse the tensions?" And they agree that what they should do is they should all get dressed up in all of their best armor and all their best swords and get their pendants and get their flags and get some drums and get some trumpets and let's have a like friggin' awesome parade through the town with all of our men together. It will be dope. And they're like, yep. And so that's what they did. So cool. they all got together and that's they, cool. I know. So they all like got together. They all got their men. They all marched. They all like sat on their horses and their full regalia. They got trumpets. They got banners. And they decided that they were going to have this like, basically, we were going to look friggin' cool with this awesome parade. Mm-hmm. So they do an awesome parade and together. All, together. And all the people are like, okay, 
maybe we're all not going to hell in a handbasket because Somerset and York, they're like being cool. And they're like, we're doing it for the king. Parade we're buddies. doing it for England. And they're riding through and everyone's like, oh man, oh well, functioning, you know, government, yay. I wonder how much each of those guys was thinking deep in his mind, should I make the first move? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's that much tension, if you think the other guy's probably going to kill you, you're wondering if you should do something yeah. first. And, you know, he's probably wondering the same thing. And so, uh, yeah, that's tough. Anyway, but they're riding and there's a, it's a cool parade. And so this kind of did a lot to like, you know, throw some water on the seething people who just wanted some bloodshed. Right. And, and they see like, oh, our leaders, our noblemen, they're cool with each other. All right. And that kind of like turned the volume way down, the sort of show of force. And it's awesome. So they didn't have a dance battle, but they had, they kind of had this like cool parade. Sweet. I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. So yeah, if you, I mean, enough. if you got a bunch of seething bros, what you got to do is you have to have some right. kind of like, yeah, some kind of like show of- Hop on a lowrider, exactly, drive around downtown. Exactly. Together. So like they it. did this and then the parliament continued on without any, without any violence, which is great. So everyone, everyone was real nervous, but it ended with a, with a great parade and people are happy. Cool. Okay. Fast forward a little bit. Um, are you guys aware of the medieval practice of um, a sanctuary? Of yeah, church, running, churches. A, running a church, can't get hurt. Mm-hmm. So turns out not every church can do this, oh. but there was churches oh. who would dedicate themselves to, well, I guess maybe it was one of those things where like all churches technically were supposed to do this, but some of the churches would be like, yeah, we don't really do that here. You're going to jail. Mm-hmm. Or, um, I mean, I wonder if it was just whether or not you had bunk beds. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Do you have the space? Like, what are you going to do, sleep on a pew, man? Get out yeah. of here. Because yeah. if you're a church that like really holds fast to the traditions of sanctuary, who are you going to be getting coming to your doors at night? Criminals all day. All day, all night, criminals yeah. all the time. Uh, and there are some churches in the Middle Ages who they saw this as their calling. This was their ministry. God has called us to be the sanctuary for people who, you know, need to have some sort of habeas corpus. Like if we don't, they're going to get murdered in the street and that sucks. So I feel like it's just some complicated game of r- really risky tag. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, can't get me. I'm in base. Uh-huh. And that night yeah. they go off robbing again and they're like, oh, ah, ah, back at the church. Can't get me. Um, so there was this place called uh, St. Martin de Grand uh, in London. And it was a church that took the rights of sanctuary very seriously. And not so soon after that big old raid on Somerset's Inn that one night at Blackfriars, um, a dude named William Oldhall comes banging on the door. And he's like, hey, um, like priests in St. Martin de Grand, I need help. There are men trying to kill me. And they're like, all right, come on in. You got sanctuary. And they're like, yes, awesome. William Oldhall an ally of the Duke of York, claimed that he was being accused of being one of the guys who robbed and took all of Somerset's mm. stuff in the Blackfriar raid, and now Somerset's men are coming out to kill him. And the priests were like, okay, well, you're safe here. And the priests went and sent out their little guys into the street to be like, hey, are Somerset's men trying to kill William Oldhall? Oh, yeah, they're trying to kill William mm. Oldhall. Oh, yeah. So um, they're like, all right, William, you can stay here. And that's all. And and so, you know, you'll be safe here. And they're like, cool, great. Um, Somerset's men came. Is Old Hall in there? And they're like, yeah, Old Hall is in here for sure. And they're like, all right, give it, you know, we want him. They're like, well, no, sanctuary, you can't get him. And the men were like, you know, screw your customs. They kicked down the door. They went into the church and they grabbed William Old Hall and they dragged him out. And the priests were freaking out this whole time. 
Yeah. That is a great way to turn the entire yes. country against you. Um, priests go on this like letter writing campaign to the king and mm. to everybody and do and like basically whip up all of this sentiment. Did Old Hall die? No. They whip up all of the sentiment and so much so that the people were so ticked that um, the man who took William Old Hall had to like sheepishly bring him back. Wow. <laughs> Darn so, right. Okay. So everybody got all worked up into a frenzy and the guys were like, fine, here's your Old Hall. And they threw him back into the church and he ended up staying there for three years. He couldn't get out. And so they like fed him and clothed him. He stayed there. And Old Hall, he was a noble. He had land. Uh, I don't remember if he was a duke or, or earl of anything, but he had big tracts of land, one of Duke of York's buddies. And so he's in this place and, um, you know, so, you know, I, I like that story because the, you know, the priests, they, they won save on the that day, one. Darn right. They saved the day. They're like, listen, you don't get to overthrow our customs. So Old Hall's in there. His story comes back in a little bit. Um, so this parliament had happened. Tensions had been kind of going down just a little bit. Um, and um, things were starting to look up. Things were starting to look up for Henry VI and Somerset. Uh, maybe the tide was turning. Um, uh, Richard Duke of York um, had had another parlay where he kind of went and, and kind of reiterated, hey, this, the, what happened in, in, in Parliament last time was a little, was a little sketchy. Um, uh, I really think that I should be given a lot more authority to execute a lot of the law of the land and sort of right the ship. And the king kept sort of sandbagging him and being like, no, I'm the king, I execute the law, you're one of my servants, you and Somerset, you kind of have to work together. And so there was another one of these parlays where there was another show of force and another one where it just didn't work out in Richard Duke of York's favor. Um, it ended with support for Henry and, and basically for continuing the status quo, the status quo that Richard Duke of York wanted to change because the status quo was the slow, like, weakening of the state and he felt that he could sort of bring some vigor and strength back to it. Didn't work. Um, meanwhile, Talbot in France is just, just absolutely throwing down. <laughs> there, we get this report that he had had this like amazing victory in Bordeaux. No one ever thought that Bordeaux would ever become English again. Um, Talbot uh, has this this big route in Bordeaux. He rides in. They're wa- all the French people who are like kind of English because England used to own it for so long. They're waving English flags, um, and Talbot well, that is sure just makes the victory easier. When, yeah, right. Everyone decides to yeah. be on your side. And so, well, all the people. He routed the army, and he's coming in. Talbot. He's also known as Old Talbot because he's an old dude. Mm. Uh, he's old school. He's old chivalry, right? Like he is uh, uh, full of the romance and the chivalry, doesn't wear his armor. Oh, it's so cool. Um, so he is just absolutely owning it in France. All right, so we've got we've got kind of like an easy status, uh, sort of a tense but main, maintainable status quo with Duke of York. We got Talbot who is just rocking it in France. And, um, um, and at this point, Uh, There was a bit of a charm campaign that they wanted to do to try to want to make Henry VI's family feel bigger than it was. Remember, Margaret, no kids. She's not even pregnant, not even with a daughter. Like, there's nothing. And so the people are getting a little concerned. So what they did was, well, we got a couple things. Somerset was like, who do I really want to stick it to? Well, I really want to stick it to William Oldhall because I think that guy stole my stuff uh, in that raid in Blackfriars. And he's like wasting away in this, 
um, in this sanctuary. And so he basically convinced the king, like, hey, this guy's no good. He can't be any good. He's in, he's in like, church jail. He must have done something bad. And the king's like, yeah, he probably was in charge of that raid. So he's, they stripped William Mulhall of all his land. Um, so he's sitting here in jail being like, gosh darn it. And there's nothing he can do about it. And they stripped all of his land. And they're like, all right, we got all this land. And they actually had some titles. And we got some land, we got some titles to give away. And we kind of want to make the king's family look bigger and cooler than it is. What should we do? Well, turns out that there was two boys who were coming of age. Um, and they were the king's half-brothers. So you remember, the king's mom was um, Henry V's wife, Catherine. Catherine? Catherine. The, El, the, the girl from uh, Shakespeare. Elbow. Yeah, her. Um, remember, so she was a beautiful French princess, and she was married to this awesome king, Henry V. He died early, and she was like, I am a gorgeous French princess. What do I do? And she had a love affair with a Welshman yes. named Owen Tudor. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so she had some kids with Owen Tudor named um, Edmund and Jasper. And she... That's some like... Uh, Abbott, or aren't they Abby? Isn't That's right. Yeah. So she had her boys go and live, and apparently they had this like idyllic, amazing life in this abbey. I can't remember the name of the abbey. We talked about it, I think, two episodes ago. So these Tudor boy, Edmund and Jasper, they're at this abbey where they're getting, it was run by a kinsman of um, Chaucer, and so they read like all this amazing literature, and they grew up in this abbey, and it was very picturesque with flowers, and you know, it was peaceful. Man, into that. Yeah, that it was just great. like a great childhood. And so Edmund and Jasper are living this little idyllic life. They are half-brothers to the king. Their mom had unfortunately died. Um, And they're just living there. And and so people are like, okay, what we should do is we should kind of like bring them into the fold. We should have them be a little bit more forces. We don't want them to be too in the fold because let's remember, they're half Welsh and half French. That doesn't bode well for England. Um, they have a French mom and a Welsh dad. They actually don't have a drop of any English blood in them. So they can't be, like, in government. But we do need to show that, like, the king's got, like, a cool family. So they kind of go through this charm campaign. So they make Edmund um, the Duke of Richmond, and they make Jasper the Duke of Pembroke. And they give them William Oldwell's lands. Ha ha. And so they end up getting the uh, the lands from William Oldhall. So he's just like sitting in sanctuary being like, man, this sucks. Uh, It's like you shouldn't have raided the inn. But anyway. Are we sure? Pretty sure he actually did that. Ah, we don't really know. A drunken raid on an inn trying to kill your your lord's enemies. Maybe. Um, We have to look into it. I don't know. But anyway, he loses all his land. He's like wasting away in this church. And meanwhile, uh, these, like, Welsh Frenchies um, get uh, titles and get all of his land. Edmund and Jasper. Um, uh, and, so th- and so you kind of have this little wing of the, f- of the British crown um, in this new family that are Welsh and French called and the families of the family of Tudor. So you have this, wi- this Tudor wing of the family, and they're going to become, obviously, important later. So you get this charm campaign of having these guys, um, and they were by all accounts, bros of the First Order. They were smart, they were witty, they were handsome, they were good-natured, sanguine, they were, uh, you know, they were virtuous and well-educated. And so, Duke of Richmond, Duke of Pembroke, rock and roll. Two, gr- two great guys to have in, you know, in the, in the world. Because if you remember, Duke of York, he's got all these awesome kids. Um, um, his, um, 
yeah. Anyway, he's got all these great kids, um, and uh, uh, and his son, the Earl of March. People are like, "Oh, that guy's so cool." Well, if you have Edmund and Jasper, they're cool too. You kind of build up this charm campaign. Okay, and then the greatest thing happens for Henry the Sixth. Queen Margaret gets pregnant. Hey. So Queen Margaret gets pregnant. Um, a little serving man came to the king to tell him of Margaret's pregnancy, and the king rewarded that serving man with, like, this giant handful of jewels. Mm. So, I mean, that's that's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, in fact, the, there was one particular jewel that he got that was really big, and it has some famous name, and yeah. it's, like, gone through history being this, like, famous jewel of good luck. Um, but anyway, this little serving man is like, hey, uh, uh, your wife's with child, and Henry VI gives him a jewel. Yes, Thank you. So, and the first people to congratulate the king are Richard, Duke of York, and Cecily. So they email him. They text him, and they're like, hey, man, um, just wanted to say congratulations. We hope it's a boy. And um, and people were like, finally, this is turning down the crisis in England. Uh, Duke of York, we, even if he is the next in line, whoever that, that – the, everyone's like, that's got to be a boy. It's a boy. We know it's a boy. Um, it was a boy. Um, but uh, whoever's in that womb, like, that is the heir. We now have an heir. We now have, like, Talbot just absolutely throwing down in France. Um, so everything kind of stabilizes. Things, things are stabilizing. And Richard Duke of York, he's kind of stabilizing. He's no longer, like, really feels the need to push the issue about him being the heir and all this kind of stuff because there's sort of a little bit of hope bubbling uh, and, uh, and that hope in the womb of, of Queen Margaret. Okay. Um, oh. and then we have July 17th, 1453. So July 17th, 1453. Say no more. AJ, do you want to take it from here? <laughs> A miscarriage? No, oh. we have the Battle of Castillon. So Talbot. Talbot rides into battle, into the Battle of, of, of Castillon. Remember? He's not wearing no any armor, arm, no yeah. armor, because he's you know he took a vow because right. he's he's awesome. He takes a uh, he 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 rides in and he sees the French forces and he sees what's happened so many times before, which is a big kick up of dust of the French retreating, and he's like, "It's on, boys! It is a rout." Mm. And he does not wait for his reinforcements to come oh, no. because he sees the French forces retreating oh, no. and he rides into them. Turns out, it was not the French forces retreating. It was all the like little people that follow around mm. the army getting away from the battle because the French had a massive barrage of artillery. Mm. Oh, one no. of the first times that we have really big artillery guns in battle. Explosives um, or no? Yeah, yeah, cannons. Oh wow! Um, and so oh, all no. of the like cooks and like shoe shiners and squires, they're all like, "We gotta get out of here. The battle's coming." And so they start leaving, and that's what kicks up the dust. And Talbot's like, "Oh, it's on, boys!" And so he goes running in. Oh no! And he charges the artillery. Now, there comes a moment where Talbot realizes, "Oh, uh, we're out. This they are not retreating," and. Um, and he, uh, uh, there's a moment where he, he's like, we got it. We should pull back. But for whatever reason, he doesn't. And people speculate, did he do it because he felt like he was already pot committed or did he do it because he felt like, you know, we've already started the charge. We've already put our men, like we have as much a chance of winning as losing right now. So let's go for it. Talbot charges with his knights straight headlong into the artillery fire. Oh no. Um, 
Um, the artillery, uh, the, the, the way that the, uh, it was described was that six men died per artillery shot. Mm. Oh. Every artillery shot was just cutting through the French horses. You mean the British horses? This right, the British horses. And Talbot was charging, um, and remember, um, and he's not wearing any armor. Right. Um, at some point, his horse gets shot out from under him, and he falls, and the horse falls on top of him, and he's stuck under his horse, and he's just yelling his, like, commands, and he's John Talbot under this horse, and he's, like, trying to get from under this horse, and some French, like, uh, nobody... A, like little uh, archer French guy comes up and uh, battle axes him in the head and uh. kills John Talbot oh, on the no. field of battle. The Battle of Castillon, John Talbot is killed among with thousands of British uh, horses. And I think like 40 French were killed. Um, so like 40 oh, Frenchmen gosh. died and like like 9,000 English died. Or wow. maybe it wasn't that big. But a lot, but... Um, wasn't it, a good outcome. Yeah. It was not a good outcome. It was... The final battle of the Hundred Year War hmm. is what it ended up being. In fact, this was the f- the battle that that actually ended English footholds in France at all, um, like forever. Forever. Uh, this is the end of the Hundred Year War. Is the Battle of Castillon, the death of John Talbot, uh, uh, Earl of Shrewsbury, and um, and of course it had to happen because it was right around the Hundred Year mark. So if you're fighting in a Hundred Year War. It's time. It's yeah, time. Yeah, so, yeah. so it had to happen. That's a great point. Um, so anyway. why <laughs> you don't name wars. In exactly. The, in the until, you, until a little later. Yeah. Yeah. So he dies <laughs> and pinned under the horse and axed in the head. Um, and the French end up raising a monument to John Talbot on that spot. Because wow. they're like, he was so cool. John Talbot was dope. He was a worthy adversary. They thought it was so romantic and so awesome that he swore to the French king that he wouldn't wear armor and, and he, he died didn't? because he wasn't wearing armor. Yeah. Um, they were like, that's nobility. Um, the battle ends up kind of being immortalized and remembered as kind of like the last battle of chivalry, like the last, sort of this chivalrous charge of the unbeatable horses. Right. And now you're entering into this age of artillery and this age of a different kind of warfare. So John Talbot is, is often sort of seen as the la- that sort of last flower of the Middle Age chivalry, of the romantic charges against the enemy, of, of um, leading your men into battle. And we're now moving into an era of tactics, of, of a warfare that is going to be much more tactical than it is going to be like a mob of men romantically smashing into each other. Um, which is medieval warfare. And so when John Talbot died, he was an old, you know, old guy, old school, there was this realization that times are changing. He was defeated by, he was defeated by cannons, just like how a hundred years ago, the, the French were defeated by longbows. Um, and, uh, and so, um, it, yeah, that really does signal this change in, in the world, and so the and and the French raised this monument to the Earl of Shrewsbury. It's still there today, and um, his men uh, took his heart and buried his heart at his childhood church in Shrewsbury. And his heart's still there today. You can go to Shrewsbury and look at his heart. Cool. I don't think you can see it. It's buried Which guy had that idea? Go bury my Guys. heart. Let's cut his heart out and we'll save it. Well, it's probably something that they talked about in the campfire. They're like, "What oh. would happen if you died?" And John Talbot's like. I want you lads to cut out my heart and <laughs> bury it in my church in Shrewsbury. People be like, okay. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah, sure. that checks People out. People are like, all right, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. on brand. Uh, <laughs> makes sense. Seems so like. word gets back to England 
And it was recognized as the absolute disaster that it was. People, immediately people realized, we are done in France. They took the word to the king, and Henry VI went mad. He was in what was known as a walking coma for 15 months. He did not recognize Margaret. He did, when Margaret gave birth to their son, and she presented her, the son to Henry, and he was like, baby, and handed it back to Margaret. He had no idea who he was. He had no idea what was going on. He didn't recognize anybody. He went into this 15-month-long madness, uh, this sort of winter of, of, of losing his faculties. Yeah, that's not good. That's not good. No. Does um, he come out of it? or does Eventually. It? We'll talk about that next podcast. This is where we're going to end this one. Is that all of – so you – in a space of a couple years, you went from winning in France – having a child, Duke of York becoming more of an ally because you're having this child, um, to no more foothold in France. Um, and your king has gone mad. Now, we've seen kingdoms... Already people are concerned that England is, pardon me, wasting away because of the inability of the king. But imagine when word gets around that, like, your, can't recognize your king kid. does not recognize your chi- a child, and he is supposed to be the head of state, he who dispenses justice in the land. This is going to trigger an absolute crisis of leadership in England. And, um, and so you have this sort of like fitting end. You've got John Talbot dying on the field, England finally getting kicked out of France, a major sticking point, whereas... Henry VI's father was supposed to be the king of England and France, uniting those two kingdoms together into this glorious empire. Well, that went away, and now they're completely out of England, and you've got this, like, a king who's gone absolutely mad. Um, uh, and people, a lot of people turned to it and were like, well, we shouldn't have killed Joan of Arc. Uh, this is God's judgment on us. But now you are definitely going to, what is coming is, is going to be a massive showdown between um, a Somerset and the Duke of York. And that's where we're going to pick up our mad King Henry when we get back. Dang. I like it. That is awesome. Yep. That's very... Isn't that very crazy? Good. It is. The whole story is. Thank you, Graham. That was very good. Uh, this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. You can find us online, classicalstuff.net. You can find us on Twitter at classicalstuff, C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. You can find us on Patreon, where we record in-between episodes and monthly AMAs, patreon.com slash classicalstuff. And you can email us, the guys at classicalstuff.net. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you again next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.